0: Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and recently I've spent longer than I'd like to admit trying to work out what one book would I take with me if I were actually stranded in a bunker. No decision yet, I'm still bargaining with the hypothetical bunker police about how flexible the one book policy is. I'll let you know how I go. Do you have a bunker book pick? Email backstoryrrr at gmail.com. Record a voice memo and share your bunker book pick or comfort read. Once again, I have a packed show for you today. Australia is in the grip of an epidemic and the zoo flu has an extraordinary side effect. Those affected can talk with the animals. But as hard-bitten, hard-drinking, would-be ranger Jean discovers what animals are really saying and how they say it opens up a world of wonder and pain. Laura Jean Mackay's novel, The Animals in That Country, brilliantly conjures an idea of animal communication that is at once beautiful and brutal, filled with absurdity and wonder, and exposing the truly dark nature of the human animal along the way. Laura joins me later in the hour. And the winter edition of Overland is out next month, the first by co-editors Evelyn Araluan-Core and Jonathan Dunk. The editors promise to refocus the progressive aims of the 65-year-old radical literary journal, deepening diversity and inclusion.
1: Triple R on FM Digital Online via the app.
0: The new edition of Overland comes out next month, the first by co-editors Evelyn Aralewin-Core and Jonathan Dunk. The pair promise a strong editorial collaboration running the 65-year-old... Radical Literary Journal, broadening ideas of diversity and inclusion, bringing critical essays to a wider audience. I spoke with Evelyn and Jonathan recently. Now, it's uh, it did cause a little bit of confusion when we were trying to get in touch this morning, but in fact, uh, you both live together as well as work together. And I find it an intriguing enough thing to co-edit a magazine, but certainly even in these, these weird times of isolation, uh, that kind of double whammy of working and living together uh, must be a really interesting experience.
1: <laughs>
2: we haven't killed each other yet. No, really. It certainly it certainly does create um, a number of administrative uh, challenges, I'll say, when you're in the same house and you're dealing with the same people and you're attempting to achieve the same result uh, it's really hard to not step on each other's toes yeah, all the time. Yeah.
1: It's um it's interesting from an editorial point of view as well because um you know you've both got different things that you'll fight for different things that you prioritize. I think um uh it's uh, just for the editorial relationship. I think it's important to know how to disagree. Um uh, my experience,
2: <laughs> I don't, and I will. <laughs> I'll fight for something that I want. Until the complete point of irrelevance and then we have to sort of finish the day and I'll be like cooking dinner and just being like, how was your day? And really passive-aggressively.
1: <laughs>
2: yes.
0: Well, Look, I mean, it's it's sort of really interesting to me because I've always thought of editorial as really being like family. You have these quite intense relationships um, mm. within that team because you're working to deadline. You're often uh, doing something that, that's quite a passion project as well. Um you know, there's a real intensity to those kind of work relationships as well. So do you kind of have a bit of a wall around it all where you're kind of like this is, you know, where we um, draw the line about where we talk about work when we're at home?
1: That's Mm -hmm. probably a good idea, but no. No, (laughs)
2: Richard. Now, thanks for
0: mentioning.
1: Thus far there's uh, uh, no separation at all. No. But we we met when we were both doing our our PhDs um, at Sydney, so we've been working together in some capacity for for quite a long time. Yeah, and
2: being poets and writers ourselves, it's sometimes, um, you know, we'll sometimes have moments when something occurs and then we just sort of fight for who gets to write the poem about it. (laughs) You know, there's, there's... that's always something that, you know, I tend to be I tend to be quite quick, but he tends to be quite good. So, you know, it's it's a it's a really difficult balance trying to get in on 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 the right story and on the right idea for work. And, you know, we've been butting heads for a couple of years in these things. You know, you submit to the same competitions and to the same journals. Uh, but ultimately <laughs> ultimately like the fact that we know each other very well, and we know each other's literary instincts very well. Has you know, all jokes aside, it's actually meant that where we come into Overland, particularly for its literary and and political publications, uh, we're definitely, I think, really well equipped to to pick up the things that the other might not have, uh, and that's just yeah, the benefit of co-editorial relationships. I mm-hmm.
1: think mm-hmm.
2: very much so.
0: What? you know, what kinds of things have you kind of really tussled over for this this new first edition of Overland? Because really taking over from a magazine that's been going for a long time, uh, a journal rather, that's been going for a long time, has a really established sort of uh, sense of itself, but is evolving obviously as well uh, with changes in how, uh, you know, how it's disseminated um, both online and in print. How are you um, kind of, know, what kinds of things have you sort of tussled over in terms of creating this new edition?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose um, it's a simple fact of uh, editing that um, there's never enough space for everything one wants. Um, and that's true here. But um, particularly with the new issue, uh, we uh, had a really strong sense of agreement, I think, particularly. So the new issue is devoted, so, you know, Overland was founded as Australia's, uh, journal of Radical Thought, of Radical Writing and of Radical Politics. So for our first issue, we've really curated it around what does radical writing, what does radical thought mean today? Um, and I think in that there was quite a lot of agreement. Would you?
2: Yeah, I think one of the benefits of, you know, of, of uh, the approach that we've taken here was that we did kind of agree that we would create the opportunity for Overland to sort of go back to Its roots and that has eliminated any possibility, I think, of either of us steering it too aggressively in the direction that we might want, Mm -hmm. um, or in a direction that we might feel is most appropriate for our preferences or our networks and connections. Uh, we really wanted to be able to revisit some aspects of Overland's archival history. As Jonathan mentioned, you know, this history of, of radical politics and the radi- radical imagination has been really central to Overland's mission over the last 60 years. And when we started the job, we, um, you know, we began at a time of uh, a lot of transition. Overland was leaving uh, its historic relationship with Victoria University. So we were packing up the archives um, to go into. Uh, move into our new temporary office with the United Workers Union and that gave us a glimpse at some of Overland's history, some of the images and some of the, the writing that um, you know, that does sort of slip into does slip into our 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 past a little too easily, and we're working really hard on bringing aspects of that back because mm. we both, I think, you know, really admired Overland for a very long time, and that yeah, yeah, that absolutely. we can be
1: united with completely. Yeah, um, so, we both published writing of different kinds in the past. I've written yeah. some critical cool work, and Evie had um, won some poetry prizes through Overland. Um, (laughs) Something I think that's really reflected in our approach. Um, So Overland, the the founding editor, um, Stephen Murray-Smith, mentioned that it should be equally committed to publishing the very best work it can, but also to publishing um, marginalized voices, to to publishing uh, uh, diverse um, critiques of the way things are going in Australia. So on the one hand, something we've been able to do in this Essay in this, is our first issue, we've got um, an essay on critique by a, a very influential and very interesting um, Australian philosopher, Justin Clements. Um, but we've also got this extraordinary um, kind of poetic piece from uh, Dujuan Hus, who is the star of In My Blood It Runs. And I think in bringing these things together, I think we're really um, attempting, anyway, to speak to Overland's founding ethos.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Overland co-editors Evelyn Araluan and Jonathan Dunk. Uh, I'm really uh, kind of like interested and intrigued by the the, this kind of idea of marrying Mm. the the best of what really was the origin uh, of Overland, the original kind of you know perspective on it, and you know, refurbishing its image for a modern world, um, you know, are you kind of finding that you're going back over and re-prosecuting things that have, have been covered in previous editions from a new perspective or are you really just trying to kind of refresh the perspective with with what's out there?
2: Kind of both and mm. the way that you frame that's really appropriate because when we have such a long archival history of Overland's work, you know, there's always going to be, um, you know, repetition or kind of a, you know, a sort of a, a readjustment of um, a lot of the critical positions and a lot of the provocations that have been made over the last, um, you know, over that last 60 years. So, we're finding ways of recalling that and and, you know, this is coming from my own sort of cultural kind of perspective on this, a lot of the work that we should be doing um, in a political organisation, in you know, an organisation that presents radical politics, is we should always be honouring everything that's come before us, but we should be preparing for everything that's going to come. That's going to come next. So, a big priority for us has been increasing some of the accessibility of that work. Mm-hmm. So we've got um, we've got an archival project that's currently going on to get those back you know, that back catalogue digitised and to get that publicly accessible for all of our readers. And we're investing just as much work in that as we are in building up new aspects of the journal. So we've got a complete redesign for the first issue, um, which I think is sort of stylistically kind of a bit more in step With the vision that we're hoping to, um, to bring Overland into the future with. We've been working with Lindley Evis, who's a really fantastic Melbourne based designer to update some of those aspects and to kind of, you know, to give a better statement about who Overland is and, and how we're, how we're a little bit more distinct than some of the other literary journals that Australia has an amazing history of. And, you know, a big part of that as well is going to be that we're completely Um, revamping the website we do know that a lot of our readers are shifting to online access and with that you know it brings a number of new challenges but some really amazing opportunities to integrate some of that archival content into the way that we're you know the way that we're doing things and the way that we're reaching out to now an international community more so than ever has you know previously um been the focus of overland's work um yeah
0: I really I mean the the kind of importance of long form has become really underlined in recent times, you know quite uh, you know opposite from the the usual sort of uh, you know prognosticating about where we would be at this stage in history that that you know social media would kill long form entirely or you know the internet would kill long form. I'm finding that there's a growing hunger for real you know, considered critique uh, because we are so overwhelmed by this uh, constant churn. People do seek somewhere to sort of, you know, think about ideas. Um, so do you feel like there is a, a real opportunity now for the essay form?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think something that's, you know, people did indeed think that, that social media and, you know, hyper saturation would, would abolish that kind of content. Interestingly enough, though, and maybe it did for a little bit, um, but it seems to have been spurring. I think these days people want essays to be part of a conversation. And if you go online, you know, in literary communities any, anyway, people are debating and they're arguing and they're sharing um, the essay form sort of as a uh, kind of communal kind of consumption, which I think is quite interesting. Mm. Um, would you agree with that, either? Yeah,
2: I totally agree that there's, you know, <laughs> While I I think that we can now understand that a lot of that hesitation about the long-form essay was itself kind of deeply cynical, Um, you know, we we couldn't have known that um, but it did turn out to be, you know, it did turn out to be an anxiety that hasn't, you know, hasn't necessarily been carried through to like the really incredible essay writing um, that we've got going on now, Um, you know, and there's been so much movement and adaption in the form as well. You know, we now have, um, we've got so much exciting work going on in memoir and in lyric and sort of confessional essays in a number of different publications. And while that's never historically been Overland sort of purview. We're really excited that, um, you know, there will be opportunities in the future for us to bring Overland's particular kind of angle of political and progressive writing to a deeply personal and confessional form. Yeah. So we'll be having we'll be having a few publications along those lines coming out throughout the year, but you know, we are still sticking to our kind of you know, bread and butter of long-form critique both in the print journal and also launching um, launching more of that online as well where yeah, it's um, historically been kind of hard to convince, you know, funding bodies that a 5,000-word online essay about critique and philosophy is going to take off on Twitter. But, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, they always say that until it does. Yeah. Um, we're, we're I'm particularly excited. We're launching um, a new series of uh, occasional um, curated long read critical pieces about criticism itself. So the very first one of them we've got coming out um, in a few weeks is by um, Dr. Ali Elizade, and it's about Frederick Jameson's recent book Allegory and Ideology. And that sounds incredibly um, ponderous, and the book itself is. But what Ali's done with it is curate. Um, a ficto-critical conversation about this book between historical personages, so between Rosa Luxemburg, between the poet, Hilda Doolittle, and the philosopher Alain Badiou, who's still living, funnily enough. Um, and I mm-hmm. think the combination between rigor and humor in that I think really epitomises what we're trying to do Mm. in criticism anyway.
2: And bringing that away from some of the historically quite elitist and very exclusionary um, forms of, you know, academic journals where access is so expensive Mm. and so difficult to maintain and placing that in something like Overland, which has a really diverse readership, I think is really important. We shouldn't necessarily be... Um, upholding some of the same uh, disciplinary, disciplinary exclusions that have um, kind of, you know, reified this idea that critique is something that happens in university and it's not relevant anywhere else.
0: Evelyn, I, I do want to touch on uh, on this because, it you know, much was made of this at your appointment um, as co-editor that, in fact, um, you are... The first, I believe, uh, Indigenous literary editor to have an ongoing appointment—a fact that I find, frankly, <laughs> amazing—that um, it's twenty twenty and that is in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's certainly something that um, that you know, when uh, when Overland made the appointment of these of you as co editor, um, was discussed at length.
2: Yeah, it was. It was. A little bit. It's a little bit strange for me, um, realizing that um, realizing that fact that you know, despite the fact that you know, we have a really amazing and rich history of Aboriginal people being involved in publishing and mm. in literary production over the last over over um, the last sort of fifty sixty years. That it has taken this long for. Um, for an Aboriginal person to have this kind of permanent editorial role in a literary journal. And I think that, you know, that that comes down to the fact that, there has been a bit of a problem with the way in which Aboriginal writers and, and creators are sort of seen as being producers and not as having, you know, the capacity to show leadership and governance and to work directly with writers, to work in an editorial capacity. And I, you know, I'm a creative writer. I that's how I started sort of in this industry alongside academic research and, and work into Aboriginal literary production. And I found it really quite startling to see that people were really embracing my creative work, but the fact that I was also a scholar was never, never, you know, quite so much a part of the conversation. So, you know, I loved editing. I loved working on literary journals and magazines and publications. And so when this opportunity came up, I was, you know, I was initially like absolutely terrified and, and deeply hesitant about it, but the selling point I guess that I, I I brought to the board was that I know black writers and I know, you know, I know what we're doing and I know what has been frustrating so many of us in this industry for such a long time and it's really important i think that aboriginal people that people of color and culture and you know culturally and linguistically diverse writers and editors are are in management and editorial positions because we make great editors we work with everyone it's not simply that i'm here just to handle the aboriginal writers in the room i think that I can bring a sort of a cultural perspective to a lot of the work that I do that we need more space for in Australia right now. If we're going to be doing, you know, if we're going to be doing these conversations right and we are going to be holding our own um, on an international stage where so many different Indigenous peoples, so many different First Nations are really showing extraordinary cultural leadership you know, we have to fix this problem that we have in Australia where Aboriginal people are seen as being, you know, creatively um, uh, creatively inclined and not also critically skilled and editorially able. Mm.
0: Again, I'm, I'm really, I was genuinely shocked um, to see That uh, recognition with your appointment, I'm very, I'm very glad that in some small way it's being addressed. I certainly hope to see more of that happening. I very much want to talk about the edition that is coming out soon. When will it be out? When can people access it and how can people access it?
2: So um, COVID-19 has radically changed some of the ways in which we're able to be producing material at the moment. So normally we would have had this edition out um, around March, May. Uh, just uh, sorry between March and 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 April um, just when the impact was starting to make itself known so it's had a lot of impact on printers and um, and on on different freelance workers so we are running behind schedule uh, it should be able to be um, purchased from our web store and it should be going out to our current subscribers uh, before the end of the month which we're really really looking forward to it is our autumn edition so we've been sort of in a desperate kind of Rush to the make sure yeah, it yeah. still comes out in autumn. So by the end of the by the end of the month, everyone should be uh, our subscribers should be receiving their copies in the mail. The and bookstores will have it. Bookstores yeah. will have it. That's been another challenge. We have you know historically always provided our journals to a lot of the amazing independent booksellers yeah, course, throughout in the right throughout um, the yeah. country, but many are um, are closed during this period. So we're finding new ways of adapting. You can always purchase our editions from the web store. Um, we'll be doing a digital launch this time, whereas we would normally be able to do a a physical launch. So we're just, you know, we're finding ways of... of um, we're
1: adapting to the situation the same way everybody's trying to, I think. To
2: the situation. But excitingly, by the end of the month and... Um, from then on, you know we've we've got um, a couple of really exciting additions planned for the rest of the year. Uh, the following one is on health, which actually was an idea that we came up before with before COVID nineteen, which um, funnily enough. Yeah, it's going to seem a little bit on the nose now, but uh, we'll we'll see if people are. Maybe you just had foresight. Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully, people aren't going to be sick to death of hearing about the pandemic. All all puns intended, but you know, we'll we'll just test everyone's patience with that one.
0: Well, I very much uh, look forward to reading this first edition and or subsequent editions. I'm, I'm hoping I can get uh, both one or both of you on, um, whoever can spare the time really, uh, to discuss in more detail the content as it emerges. Uh, that would be fantastic. Thank um, so thank you very much, though, for joining me today. Thank you so Thanks much, Melissa. Awesome. You just heard Overland co-editors Evelyn Araluen-Core and Jonathan Dunk The winter edition of Overland is out 16th of June. Up next, the zoo flu contagion has given humans the power to talk with animals, but what they learn is both more incredible and horrifying than anyone could imagine, especially what it reveals about the human heart of darkness. Laura Jean Mackay's The Animals in That Country is a novel that makes us think about our relationship with animals in a shocking, absurd and powerful way. That's up next. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring
2: science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: She isn't talking through her mouth or her mind, but like the mice and the things in the trees, through her whole damned body. Upright and narrow, very proper in her way. Her voice isn't made of words either, it's odours, echoes, noises with random meanings popping out of them, creaking sounds of welcome in her throat that don't say what they should say. No hello or hi, no formal greetings, it's my front end takes the food quality muzzle for the queen yesterday. That's an excerpt from Laura Jean Mackay's novel, The Animals in That Country, which brilliantly conjures an idea of animal communication that's at once beautiful and brutal, filled with absurdity and wonder, and truly exposing the dark nature of the human animal along the way. I spoke with Laura about her book and the exacting craft that went into creating it. Laura Jean Mackay, welcome to Backstory.
3: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: When I first started, started this call with you today I said I think you're probably a witch uh, because how else are you so uh, incredibly channeling the idea of what it's like to communicate with animals but before we get into your clear witchcraft in creating this (laughs) book I want to go back to uh to really um giving listeners a sense of what the book's about
3: there's a woman called Jean who is the main character. Uh, Jean's having a bit of a hard time. Um, she likes a drink and a smoke. She's going through a really crappy divorce. Uh, she works in an in animal park and basically she struggles to relate to other humans and she really finds a lot of solace in making up voices for animals <laughs> um, and and just cruising around the park. Um, and then a strange new flu hits and she starts just similarly <laughs> similarly to, to what happened uh, in the real world. She starts hearing news reports um, about people being affected in the south. Um She's got a really close relationship with a dingo called Sue in the park and she's also really close to her granddaughter. And as the as the sorry, the um, zoo flu, it's called, as the flu starts developing, she, she starts getting a bit excited. She feels like she's finally got some purpose in life. But then, of course, when she starts getting the symptoms of the flu and she realises that this means she can actually talk to other animals, things start getting a little bit real, especially when, the dingo Sue comes out and and confronts her with some hard dingo truths.
0: (laughs) Now, um, this book is so incredibly uh, created on so many levels. You not only have you channeled, and and it's really important to say to anyone who reads this book that that this was absolutely written well before uh, COVID happened, uh, and you have this absolutely – like uncanny ability to, to really channel some of the the manifestations of a pandemic that we've all experienced now. Um, so I'd love you to talk about that aspect because I feel as though this is one of the first real evidences for me that that a lot of research went into this book.
3: Yes, well, it, it does. I mean, the timing is ridiculous. <laughs> the timing of its launch uh, into the middle of a pandemic when when um, flu is one of the big plot lines in the book is is quite shocking. But if you look at pandemics, they follow a path, they have a journey and many of them, um, especially flu-like ones, um, follow a certain trajectory and so I did research uh, different pandemics um, and the way that virus might spread. Uh, At the same time, I was quite sick. I had been bitten by a mosquito and I was bedridden, not with a flu but with a a fairly debilitating illness and so in a way, the sicker I got, the sicker the book got and it seemed to make a lot of sense at the time. (laughs) that the people, the characters in the book would be going through a similar thing to what I was going through, except on a large scale, they all needed to share this illness so that they could also share this experience of animal communication.
0: You also have a real sense uh, of, you know, the kind of paranoia and conspiracy theories that emerge around the the virus as it spreads, um, this zoo flu, uh, that actually we've seen really happen um, throughout this this pandemic. Was that also based on, on things that you'd read or seen or heard or was it something that you would kind of imagined as well?
3: I think it was just part of that um, Australian landscape, knowing Australian media and um, especially the way that social media operates and how people do operate in um, scary or, or extreme situations. Um, it seemed very realistic to me that the characters would start developing conspiracy theories, especially gene um, who's a bit of a country gal and I'm from the country and um, you know you you you, um, you come up with some interesting ideas when when you live remotely um, and you share these with your community and so yeah it was it was based on experience, but also the characters had just really started to take off on the page by that point, so I was really um, enjoyably just following their lead. I know that I I am supposed to have control over the characters, but it did seem as though I guess because I was so sick, it did seem as though I was being led um, by them somewhat. <laughs> yeah, this uh,
0: there's, there is a quality uh, to this book that uh, that actually suggesting that you wrote it while having what while, while being unwell does does kind of come across. And I'm not in any. This is not meant in in any way as a, a negative. It is an extraordinary act of of channeling uh, human contact with animals that you do that I think requires that additional sort of leap um, of uh, imagination that I th- that, you know, maybe that's the little quality here. I really want to get into the conversation about the animals um, because it is, it's is—it's the centrepiece of the book and it is the most extraordinary uh, thing that you have done uh, in this book. Um, but let's talk about Jean first. She is really our vehicle through this whole experience. She's very much an anti-hero, antihero, uh, but a likeable anti-hero. antihero. You're, you're on her side right from the beginning. She's well-meaning. She adores her grandchild. She's She's lost her son uh, to his kind of wanderings and addiction, etc. And she has her own extreme battles with addiction. She's a very clear uh, alcoholic, and um, and you know, really, alcohol abuse sort of runs throughout as a as an extra thread here of making it seem somewhat unreal what the experience is. But you know, reality through the form of, of animal communication comes knocking on the door. So. So where did Jean particularly emerge from? You said she's a country gal, um, you know, but she's a very particular personality and quite a strong one to be following.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. So it took me a really long time to find Jean. Um, I searched for her through many, many hundreds of thousands of words. Like I really wrote an entire novel worth of books bad, bad writing before Jean came along. And that was quite a frustrating experience. Um, Some people say that you should take a little break from your writing if it's not working, but I'm more throw myself at the page kind of writer. So Jean was, um, she was a cat at one point. She was a young woman who worked in a laboratory she was a man who just sat on a couch a lot. At one point, she was quite a boring farmer called Judy. And then I was reading when I when I was sort of bedridden. I was reading. Um, I read an Otessa Mossberg story called "Bettering Oneself," and it's about a teacher who just drinks her way through um, her teaching experience, basically. Um, and I just thought, wow, that's. There's something there like there's something about this character who is is high, a high functioning um person who really has a huge problem and and also at the same time I was thinking a lot about who could carry the weight of this novel I knew that this was a novel that needed a really strong protagonist to be able to carry the weight of the animal apocalypse if I could call it that and I thought about the middle-aged women in in the world who <laughs> yes. you know who um, are like um, not don't get the respect um, from society, especially in Australia. Um, you know, and don't necessarily maybe some people don't necessarily have um, you know a huge supportive community. And I thought she's the sort of woman who can who can handle this. Um, she she can hack she could hack the animal apocalypse in a way that other characters just couldn't. And so Jean carries the weight of this story and then she needs, when she needs help, she, she, um, Sue, Sue carries a huge burden for her as well. Sue the dingo.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. am Mel Cranenberg. I'm talking to author Laura Jean Mackay about her book, The Animals in That Country. Now I've been dying to talk to you about this uh, since I read the book. Uh, the way you you kind of work out or channel the communication of animals is uh, is such an interesting uh, part of this book. It's a very core part of this book. The the kind of real communication starts to emerge um, through what you know. Jean going on a big journey to to kind of find um, her grandchild and her son who uh, has kind of you know. Become infected and is wandering off to try to um, communicate with whales uh, and takes uh, his uh, child along with him. um also we think. There's a lot of twists and turns that I don't want to give away. Throughout that experience, um, Jean teams up with a dingo called Sue, um, and the relationship between the two of them is just extraordinary. But the way you describe the communication with animals is just so interesting. It's not a sort of straight up, you know, you know words in my head or um, like, you know, some books have done having a sort of sense of some kind of uh, communication through telepathy. In fact, I think you even referenced that at one stage to say we haven't gotten telepathy yet. <laughs> um, so, But what you do do is talk about the many kind of physical aspects of, of animal communication and how they manifest in the human mind. It's things that we could not have originally conjectured is the way you frame it. Talk to me about where this, this came from, this incredible
3: um, description
0: of animal communication.
3: Yeah, you're right. They don't, I mean, the animals don't move their mouths and talk in that way. Um, They don't, most animals, as far as we know, don't have um, the, the physical structure to be able to form words in that way, and it's also not uh, telepathy. Uh, but animal bodies, as we already know, are so communicative, um, and our bodies are so communicative. We we rely on speech, but body language, the way that we smell, um, the things that we see, certain little subtexts of, of sound, taste even, that communicates a lot and I think non-human animals um, are particularly advanced in that in a way that humans aren't that's what absolutely amazes me about other animals is the extraordinary abilities they have um, the dingo's ability to smell um, just is almost incomprehensible to us the the bats ability to use sonar um, the whales ability to be you know such an enormous mammal um, but but also sort of charge through the oceans and, and speak to each other in in sounds that we can barely hear or understand. And so I really wanted to celebrate animal bodies. And another thing is that a lot of our separation uh, between humans and other animals is the fact that we have language. We feel very smarmy about that. And so I wanted to say, well, okay, um, if we're so superior um, with this language, let's take away that language barrier. What happens if we can understand, if we can somehow translate animal bodies into communication that we can understand? What happens then? What's our relationship with other animals um, if that? that power shift um, is is taken away and um, so there's some you know there's some darker moments in the novel where Jean meets um, you know factory pigs and and cows um, Jean meets insects and so I really wanted to 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 highlight um, her reaction to them and what they might have to say to her absolutely the really
0: interesting thing about I mean there's so many interesting things I don't know who <laughs> Where to start, uh, but but you didn't take the the route that that maybe would have been a more um, you know like obvious one of of communicating with domestic animals, so with cats and dogs, which seems to be a great preoccupation of us. Um, in fact, you, you handle that in a sense of sort of saying, you know, um, the domestication process might in fact make um, make communication a very different experience um, because these the animals have evolved differently. They've evolved alongside us. So you've really focused on um, animals that are used as farm animals um, that we don't, that we've kind of made things, I guess, for our own consumption uh, or wild animals Um, that, uh, you know, really do have a sense uh, of a world beyond humans uh, and that humans just figure in sometimes as figures of fear or sometimes as figures of ridicule um, or sometimes even as something that that the animals would like to predate on them. And I won't get too much into that um, because there's a really (laughs) interesting twist um, that that happens at a certain part in the book around uh, which animal wants to eat us. Um, (laughs) but it's a really interesting um, it's a really interesting framing one of the things um, that that sue through sue we sort of get to see the outside of that what it looks like to watch people try to communicate with animals um, and the sort of you know creeping um, levels of uh, like anxiety um, almost kind of like um, tipping over into um, you know serious mental health breakdowns um, but then you start to get through sue a sense of why. And the first moment of that is when she she sees um, the, the mice that are, are kept in the animal park to feed the raptors. Um, and I would love you to talk about the description of the mouse communication because it's just, it's one of, of great sort of, you know, it's devastating, but it's also just an incredible um, description as well.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, the mice, uh, you're right, are the, are the beginning of of Jean's illness and her realization that she too can communicate with other animals, and I think um, the mice um, represent a really sort of um, awkward <laughs> place in in um, in the animal world, especially the laboratory mice, because they've always been laboratory mice. Um, they're you know for generations. Um, they're there to be bred, to be eaten, and um, I read somewhere that. Mice um, communicate, um, they have gases that we can't see that, that rise off them and they can communicate in that way. So I really sort of wanted to focus on these gases um, saying things because prior to that, Jean has seen the mice and they're just squeaky little things and she finds them a bit revolting and then suddenly they're screaming and, um, you know, expressing their horror at her presence in the room and she, she really starts to get a sense of what her presence is before them might mean every time and she hasn't realised that before. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, I find her a really exciting and interesting representation as well because we have a really really contentious relationship with dingoes in Australia. We don't know how to classify them and we love to classify animals as as humans. Um, Are they feral? Um, Have they been here for long enough that they're considered, um, you know, part of the Australian um, wildlife? Or are they introduced? Are they pests? Um, And so Sue really straddles a, a lot of different categories as as well as being a once wild animal who has been taken into captivity and put into work as a show animal, and then suddenly she's free again. So she's constantly trying to express these many complex feelings that she has about Jean and other humans. On the one hand, she sees Jean as part of her family, part of her kin, and on the other hand, she just wants to run and find her pack. Um, And so there's, there's quite a lot of um, confusion and also trauma ensue. Um, that that she deals yeah. with um, perhaps in a better way than Jean <laughs> deals with her own trauma <laughs> there's a, there's a, a really great
0: moment early on uh, where you know uh, Kimberly the the young um, granddaughter uh, explains to Jean how it is to actually understand what animals are saying when Jean and when others first encounter the animal communication because it's coming in a sensory way in a way that they don't entirely understand, the way the brain, their brain, is understanding it is as fragments, like as kind of almost this this quite poetic, um, nonsensical uh, stream of consciousness um, that that just kind of alarms them because they don't know what it means, but it's coming at them with a, a sort of powerful emotion. Um, uh, you know, Kimberly says, look at the whole animal. Um, That's how you understand it, to really take in everything rather than just parts of what's coming at you. And that's a real turning point moment. And you start to then, you know, quite um, beautifully describe where each of the the elements of meaning come from on the animal body, as you say, a real um, celebration of the animal body. So, you know you're getting a sense of memory but that might be coming from smell um or that might be coming from you know the the animals not to be gross about it like you know bum area like <laughs> anal glands which is quite a common communication it might be coming from wee it might be coming from um you know the way that the dog is kind of like um uh, the fur is kind of going up on um on the dog uh, sorry on the dog sorry dingo not a dog at all um at, you know the way that that um that that the kind of, you know, physicality of the dog is moving. How, oh, it's a dog. <laughs> I was, I, I I am saying dog because um, I was reading your dog, uh, dog I was reading your book um, while I had a small dog sitting on me. And so every time I read about the dingo, I looked at the dog <laughs> to see yes. what she was doing, to see if she was communicating in the same way. What's her what 's her body doing what's she trying to tell me um, so it had a really profound effect on me this idea of um, the dingo communicating through all these many means through through posture through uh trying to um you know uh, like emit scent um and and they're they 're very powerful elements because this idea of memory coming through scent for example is not one that is unknown to humans like we have Uh, smell for us is a real memory trigger but the ability to emit uh, a scent that then evokes that in others is is an extraordinary thing did you specifically research this or is this an act of imagination Mm -hmm.
3: I I I did I did spend time with dingoes up in the northern territory um basically staring at them (laughs) a lot um sometimes to to um their um their annoyance, I think. (laughs) Um, So it was more spending time. I I did do lots of, so much research um, into all of the animals, but the way I creatively research is very scattered. Um, So it's hard for me to pinpoint now um, what is real and scientifically correct and what um, came along with the characterisation. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I, I did a PhD in in talking animals in novels in the end uh so i i genuinely have a a dr do little title um yeah so but but I don't know I yeah there was so much research but also uh when I started to really get into writing the novel as I said the characters including the animal characters started to take over and the dialogue in particular the way that the animals speak I almost think of it as another novel in itself um insofar as the way that I created it I've never written in that way before and I don't know that I'll get the chance to write in that way again where it was a very layered approach um I really had to to pay a lot of attention to particular traits like, like scent with each animal, but I also had to pay attention to the fact that I wanted the animals to have really clear, unique uh, voices that were different, very non-human voices. And, of course, I don't really know how a dingo or a mosquito speaks, but I it was so important to me that the animals spoke very loudly and clearly and had, had things to say that... Didn't necessarily relate to the way that humans treat them or the way humans are in the world. The animals have their own thing going on. Um, and as the power, yeah. as the as as Sue goes on, the power relationship between Jean and Sue does change Um, in the beginning Sue thinks of Jean as her pack and the more time they spend with each other Sue gains a bit more confidence and realizes that Jean actually needs more help and so Sue becomes more and more powerful and Jean relies on her more and more and so their dialogue changes but then there's a scene uh, where Sue Jean leaves Sue for a moment and a crowd forms around Sue and they start treating her like a show dingo again you know why do you eat why do you eat chickens are you dangerous um you know the all those sort of um tropes of the way that people judge dingoes in Australia come back and Sue is absolutely shocked because she hasn't been treated that way in quite a while um yeah
0: <laughs> it's a really uh, I think even one person asks uh you know do you eat babies yes <laughs> Yeah, it's really terrible. Um, but, you know, it is a, one of those, it kind of felt like a real, uh, that moment was a real turning point for Sue and um, in, in the power dynamic between the two characters. But it's a really interesting callback to the beginning of the book where um, one of the things that uh, that you really, it, I feel like this book is a real sort of uh, trajectory in this idea of, of our, our expectations of what animals are thinking versus what animals might actually be thinking because anthropomorphizing is not an act of actually giving an animal agency. It's it's of projecting what we want them to think and feel. And there is a real moment at the start of the book where Jean is pulled up on her. She loves to tell stories of what the animals are thinking. That's her real shtick uh, at the animal park. She she kind of tells the the people that turn up about you know what the personalities of each of the creatures are and what their sort of um, you know internal monologue is. And we learn very quickly once the, the zoo flu hits that in fact she's not right at all um, that she's kind of put the framing reference that that she wants to make um, was this a really important part of what you were trying to communicate is that you know we see animals um, as just an extension of our need but what's really going on under the surface would probably make us question everything
3: absolutely i mean i think anthropomorphism is just our very simple way of of trying to understand these extraordinarily different and and various and um and varied creatures in our lives um and yeah i i so i sort of in a way ran with that anthropomorphism idea in the way that that gene projects and um and I wanted it to be a shock, and I, I think it is quite shocking when she does um, encounter the mice and and first starts talking to Sue and and really really yeah doesn't understand what they're saying until Kimberly, as you said. Um, advises her to look at the whole animal, and I guess that's a that's a metaphor for for the way that we might perhaps <laughs> um, look at and the animals in our lives differently. Um, we cut them up into parts, and uh, we use different bits of their bodies um, for for our own purposes. Um, what happens if we look at them as whole beings, in the same way that we like to be seen? Um, by other people, and we also like to be seen by the other, by the animals in our lives as as whole and full beings um, capable of all sorts of things um, yeah yeah absolutely and uh, there, look
0: there are so many other questions I have <laughs> about this book I could talk to you all day uh, I do um, you know i don't want to give away all the elements, but the human reaction is really one that that is one of the most devastating in some cases there's sort of broadly two camps. Um, within that, but I want people to sort of experience that as they go through the book. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today, Laura Jean Mackay.
3: Oh, thank you for your incredible questions,
0: Mel. That was Laura Jean Mackay discussing her novel The Animals in That Country. The book is out now. And just a small note for readers, this is a brilliantly drawn novel, but please note that it contains scenes of animal mistreatment that may disturb sensitive readers. As all good literature does, it forces us to face up to human nature.
1: Welcome
0: to. Today on Comfort Reads, one more week to join me in rereading Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera. I'll be sharing my reflections about the book next week as we slowly emerge from quarantine. If you have also been rereading Marquez's much referenced classic, post your reading journey on Instagram. Tag me at r and hashtag Love in the Time of Backstory. Or email your thoughts to backstoryR at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. If you'd like to send me a short piece or voice memo for comfort reads or meters for launch, email me at BackstoryRR at gmail.com. Or tag your Love in the Time of Cholera reading experience on Instagram at BackstoryRR hashtag Love in the Time of Backstory. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Overland editor Evelyn Araluen-Core and Jonathan Dunk, and Laura Jean Mackay, author of The Animals in That Country. Our segment theme song is Welcome to the Bunker Baby by Nicola Watson. You can find her album on Bandcamp.
2: Independently Yours,
0: Triple R. 102.7.